Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hi there, I'm your host Simon, what happens here? One of my writers, in this case Kevin, thank you Kevin, he's written me a script. Uh, Bobby Joe Long, the classified ads rapist. Oh good, another cheery one. Uh, I've record- I recorded one of these yesterday, and actually the day before. I've been on a bit of a Casual Criminalist recording binge, because I got really far behind. And they were both just like, one of them was Ted Bundy. And the other one was, I don't even remember, but it was brutal. And I was like, you know what would be great? Something less about murder and, um, well, murder, rape, the killing of children. Ted Bundy killed children. Yeah, kind of forgot about that. A horrible monster. Anyway, thank you, Kevin, for writing this. If you're new here, the format of the show is that I've not read this before. It's a cold read. We go in, we learn a little bit together. And uh, afterwards, Jen, the wonderful editor on this channel, will edit the video and make it very nice. So thank you, everybody. Let's just jump in. That's right, Simon. I promised you a happier episode. <laughs> Kevin, the title of this is The Classified Ads Rapist. How do you think that's going to go? And you can't even make it through the title without being demonetized. Yeah, when I paused there and I was talking about what Ted Bundy got up to, and then I was like, murder and... I'm like, God, I'm in the first minute and I'm going to say the R word. I'm going to say rape. Uh, it's going to get demonetized. Ah, It's painful. It's painful running a crime channel. Sometimes they get... Although that Gacy episode, which was like three hours long, I was like, oh my God, this is so going to get demonetized. It's Gacy. He murdered teenagers and buried them in his basement. Oh my god, my monetization is just gone. And um, somehow that video is still monetized like a month later. I don't know how, I don't know why, but I'm very grateful because it means I can actually pay for it. Because otherwise, I mean, let's just say making a three-hour YouTube video is not cheap. <laughs> I guess we know who the real villain of today's episode is. Kevin, getting me demonetized is not the same as, I assume, putting adverts in the newspaper and then raping the people who respond to said adverts. Just, that, that's okay, Kevin, you're not that bad. I forgive you. What even is YouTube's deal with that nonsense anyway? True crime is insanely popular and its popularity is only increasing. The number of true crime novels sold nearly doubled from 2016 to 2018, and it's the most popular genre in many countries. Is that true? True crime novels? Is that even a thing? Is that, can that be a thing? True crime can't be a novel. True crime is true. That's oxymoronic. Must be crime novels, no? Like, true crime novels is an oxymoron. True crime, like, and a novel is fictional. Unless I'm being really small brain or something. There are entire channels dedicated to entirely true crime. The genre seems to be about 80% of Netflix's business model. There's even over 2,800 true crime podcasts, with the first of these, Serial, having over 200 million downloads. Oh my god, we're somewhere away from that. Although we're not doing badly. We're doing like a few mil a month, which ain't bad. Pretty happy with that. By a few mil, it's probably like two. I think it's like two mil. A few mil is overblown my numbers a little bit. It's not that high. Like when you combine the uh, the YouTube and the, the podcast together. I'm pretty happy with it though. It's going well. Thank you all for being here. Why would YouTube not want that sweet, sweet true crime money? Yes, we can talk about things like rape and murder or heists if one of the writers is feeling particularly benevolent towards Simon's mental well-being. But that's what true crime is, I assure you. If there was a true story about a princess riding a magical unicorn who stole all of greedy dwarfs' goals, that I would absolutely write a script about it. But that isn't what the real world looks like. Do you want me to answer this, Kevin? I know we're already super long into the introduction, but is this a serious question, Kevin? Because I can answer it very easily about why it's like this. It's because, let's say you're watching a YouTube video, and then it's like, and then Ted Bundy uh, cut her head off, necrophiled it, and then took it into the mountains and threw it off a cliff. And then what you'll do is the YouTube will go something like this. 
Smash cut to, it's the taste of summer, Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola doesn't want to be having their taste of summer advert or whatever it is right next to, right after someone has listened to Ted Bundy throwing a head down a mountain. You know, he didn't actually do that, but... You know, he probably did. But that sort of thing. That's why, Kevin. If you were actually curious, that's why. The real world is a cold, uncaring place where people enact horrific acts of violence upon one another, and that is exactly what people came here for. <laughs> yes, today's story is about a serial rapist and murderer, but it's really more about one of his victims than it is about him. I like it when it's like that. When one, Like, what was that one where that girl got kidnapped and she escaped and then the guy got caught? It's like, yes! Those are my, those, like, the revenge is just... I don't know what it is about, like, revenge, but it's like, I think it's why those Taken movies are so popular, because it's just like someone is just goes out on a mission, and you're like, yes, yes, yes! I have a very specific set of skills. I don't know why I did it in the Batman voice. All right, Kevin, look, we've talked enough about ads. I'm skipping over this. You've got really into long introductions lately, and I just want to get into the story. Lisa McVeigh. Lisa McVeigh grew up in and out of foster homes. She had a mother, but her mother was a drug-addicted alcoholic who was homeless and not fit to care for her. When she was 14, Lisa's mother forced her to move in with her grandmother to help take care of her, but her grandmother also had a boyfriend, one who would pull a gun on Lisa while he molested and raped her repeatedly over the next three years. Well, holy shit, Kevin. Don't, don't like, don't like warm this up or anything. Just, just jump right into it, why don't you? Christ. Enough was enough, and on the night of November the 3rd, 1984, 17-year-old Lisa had resigned herself to committing suicide. She worked late night at the Krispy Kreme, where she wrote out her suicide note before finally leaving at around 2am. Lisa began to ride her bike back to her grandmother's house, where she would end her own life. Is it really dark that in this situation I'm thinking like, well, no, I don't know if I can say this, I can't say this. But... <laughs> Oh my god, this is one of those things that doesn't just get you demonetized on YouTube. It gets you like a strike for community vi guidelines. I, someone might suggest that if she was going to do this, someone might say, why not murder her? Um, why can't I remember this word? Not accuser. Um, Simon, use your big brain. What's the word? The opposite of a victim. Not perpetrator. Is it perpetrator? Yeah, the perpetrator of her molestation and stuff. Just saying. Just saying, someone might say, why not just pop him off first? You got, what have you got to lose? It's probably a good idea. Sounds like a dick. As she rode her bike along, she noticed a red car parked in front of a church. It seemed odd to her, but it was more than just odd. It was dangerous. As she got closer, a man jumped out of the car and pulled her by the hair off the bike, pulling a gun on her. She was no stranger to rape at this point and did not attempt to fight back. The man blindfolded Lisa with the gun pressed against her left temple and ordered her to strip. She complied and he bound her wrists and ankles before forcing her in the car and demanding she perform oral sex on him. Lisa may have been used to this sort of treatment at home, but this was not the man's first time either. There was already a line of dead bodies in his wake and there was still more to come. After the rape in the parked car, he drove to a nearby apartment. This was something new. The man normally didn't bring his victims home, but he could tell there was something special about her. To Lisa's surprise, the man cut her free and ordered her to put her clothes back on. She wasn't being let go. It would just be too conspicuous to march a bound and naked minor through his apartment building at gunpoint. She counted her steps as she walked, so she could find her way back to the door to identify it if she got, if she got the chance. 19 steps and a quick left turn, followed by a quick right. Inside the apartment, the man would continue to rape Lisa for the next 26 hours. Faced with her imminent death at the hands of someone else, 
She had a change of heart. She no longer wanted to die. She wanted to live, and she was going to have to try to find a way out of this, no matter what it took. But she also knew that may not be possible. There may not be a way out. She asked to use the bathroom, but the man refused. She insisted that if he didn't allow her to go, she'd go all over the bed. The man allowed her to use the bathroom, and she immediately got to work. She frantically went through the entire bathroom, the mirror, the walls, the toilet, everything. She wasn't looking for a weapon or a means of escape. She was making sure to leave as many fingerprints as possible. If Lisa was going to die that night, she wanted to make sure that when the police finally found the apartment, they knew that she was one of the man's victims. This may not have been the man's first murder, but there was something different about the way he treated her. At one point, he made her a sandwich, a simple kindness that he had never offered a previous victim. The radio was on, and as she ate, a report about a missing 17-year-old girl named Lisa was broadcast. She had lied to her captor and told him she was 19 and named Carol, but hearing herself reported missing on the radio made the nightmare she was living too real. She began crying, and the man ordered her to stop, telling her that if she didn't, he'd be forced to kill her. Lisa was a smart girl who understood that words had meaning. The man didn't say he would kill her. He said that he would be forced to kill her. Maybe, just maybe, he didn't want to kill her, and she could use this to her advantage. The man may have been 31, but he seemed almost childlike mentally. Lisa asked why he was doing this to her. He said that due to a recent breakup, he was getting back at women in general. It's hard to imagine his ex would have let such a high-quality guy slip out of her fingers. <laughs> Kevin. 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 <laughs> Is that the best time for a joke like that? Jesus. <laughs> I know I don't make the most appropriate jokes, but wow. But Lisa saw this as an opening. She offered to be his girlfriend, claiming that he seems like a nice guy. Mate, if you fall for this, it's like you kidnapped her and raped her. This isn't some like Cinderella fairy tale, mate. And fairy tales are like full of all that sort of rape. So I'm making like an allegory and alle uh, whatever it is you know i'm not i'm comparing it to that it's not oh yeah the king rapes the princess the princess is like brilliant love that <laughs> i guess the thing is his brain's obviously not right so maybe that'll work and they didn't have to tell anybody about how they met she then tried to garner sympathy by saying she was the only child of a sick father that she was the sole caregiver for also lies as she had a sister and no father in the picture he told her to get some rest and that it would all be over soon unsurprisingly she did not sleep. After the 26 hours of rape, awkward conversations, and even showering together, it was time to go. At around 3.30 a.m., the man blindfolded Lisa and ordered her back in the car. This time, as he blindfolded her, she clenched her drawer. She hoped that when she unclenched, it would leave the blindfold slightly loose so that she could see out from under it, and she prepared to make a mental note of every sight, every sound, and every smell so that perhaps they could be used by police to locate her abductor. They drove around for what felt like ages until finally arriving in the back of an empty parking lot. The man ordered Lisa out of the car and told her to wait there for five minutes. She stood terrified. Was he watching her? Was he about to run her over with his car? Was he pointing the gun right at her in case she moved, simply testing her obedience as his potential secret girlfriend? She would get her answer when she felt the barrel of the gun press against her temple again, just before the man pulled the trigger. Oh. Kevin, I see the next line, and he just says he's messing with me. I promised you a happy ending, and I know you like it when stories of murderers open when the victim got away. Before telling her to wait five minutes, the man said to Lisa, Tell your father he's the reason I didn't kill you. After the five minutes passed, probably longer because of how terrified she was, Lisa finally removed her blindfold. She was alone. The man had driven off. There was no longer anything in the parking lot to fear. As for what happened to Lisa next, we'll get to that in a bit. Oh my god. This dude is like, he's f***ed. Like, I don't... <laughs> You've made a huge error. You took your victim to your apartment and after brutally raping them, 
over a long time and now it's like you're good good you've made a tactical error and it's your time is is coming to an end you're going down early life of bobby joe long Robert Joseph Long, a.k.a. Bobby Joe Long, was born in 1953 in West Virginia. He had a rare condition known as Kleinfelter syndrome, also known as 47XXY. Bobby was born with an extra X chromosome. The main symptoms are infertility and small, poorly functioning testicles. Unfortunately, this was not the case for Bobby, and whether his testicles were tiny or not, he wasn't uninfertile. He did have one rather noticeable symptom that we'll mention in a moment. One less noticeable symptom for those with Kleinfelter syndrome is that it can be difficult to learn to read. It doesn't normally cause intellectual impairment, but difficulty specifically with learning how to read resulted in Bobby failing the first grade. Then there was all of the physical trauma that he suffered. It was all accidental, but there sure was a lot of it. At the age of four, he almost drowned. He would later blame his mother for claiming that she was too busy checking out guys to pay attention to him. At age five, he fell off a swing and the head trauma knocked him unconscious. His eyelid was also impaled by a stick. At age six, he flew off his bike into a parked car, knocking out several teeth and suffering a severe concussion. At age seven, he was hit by a car, knocked unconscious in hospital. Holy <laughs> uh, the first I was kind of like my first inclination was like yo 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 if a, if a kid is like getting in all of these things like oh yeah they broke their arm oh yeah they walked into a door oh yeah they fell off their bike it's like social services you should probably uh have a little look-see into that but in this case it just seems like this kid is just up to he's just wild Later that year, he was hit by another car, which severely damaged his teeth and deformed his jaw. At age eight, yeah, we're still going, he fell off a pony and landed on his head. He was left feeling dizzy and nauseous for weeks, probably the result of another severe concussion. At age nine, he fell off a fence and needed to get stitches to his head. This is almost supernatural levels of shit luck. It's also, I don't know, some you get these kids, and it's like, I wonder what happens if I ride my bike off that wall. You know, just people are insane. <laughs> And then it's like, well, the front wheel dips down and then you smash your head into the pavement. And that's exactly the sort of kid who'll be like, I wonder if I can use this swing without holding onto the bars, you know, onto the, the, the chains. And it's like, oh, yeah, I fell off and smashed my face on the ground again, didn't I? So, or like the same kid who just walks out in the street without looking. I think it's not luck or lack of luck. It's just that sort of person, right? <laughs> it's like the person It's like, if someone's always late... They don't always have bad luck with traffic. They're disorganized. It's not, oh, the traffic was really bad. It's like, yeah, but everyone else is here on time and you're always late. So, like, you know, you know what I mean? Bobby was already born a little bit different, and now we can add on massive and repeated head trauma. What's next in the tragical criminalist recipe for a serial killer? Oh, let's add in some parental abuse. Let's go. I shouldn't be so excited about that. We need to add in a dysfunctional family. There we go. At the age of 10, after all of that physical trauma, Bobby's parents divorced for the second time in his life. He and his mother had to move back into a tiny crowded house with his aunts and cousins in Florida, where he and his mum shared a bed together. Bobby was also in the fourth grade now, where the other students would constantly tease him for his deformed jaw and teeth yo this is not like um you know normally it's like at, you know ted bundy or whatever <laughs> ted bundy's a bad example because he didn't have a particularly rough childhood but like lots of times it's like and then they were abused by their grandfather and you're like oh oh okay that really messes them up it's like no his parents got divorced don't like half of people's parents get divorced i mean that's one thing where it's like look i'm not saying like childhood abuse is an excuse for becoming a serial killer but your parents getting divorced is uh is not even close mate 
And it's like, oh no, he was bullied about his deformed jaw. And it's like, yo, kids are bullied every day and they don't turn into monsters. His already dysfunctional relationship with his mother worsened as well. She was working two jobs as waitress and a bartender, and he was resentful of the skimpy and provocative outfits that she'd wear to work, leaving him feeling neglected. It was at this age that he began being verbally abusive towards his mother. How about we don't do that? <laughs> what are you up to? Your mum could dress however she wants. She's an adult, you're a kid. Shut the f up and go to school. When Bobby was 12, his mother was able to buy them their own house, probably from all the tips she was making because their outfits were slightly skimpy, Bobby, okay? If you've lost track and are suddenly very confused, it was... I haven't. Was I supposed to lose track? It was a, it was 1965 back then when home ownership was an attainable goal even for a single mother. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not confused because I'm privileged. Oh, <laughs> Well done, Kevin. You made me walk right into that one, didn't you? No longer surrounded by her entire extended family, his mother was now free to bring home a different gentleman caller from work every single night. If Bobby was upset about his mum dressing sexy when she left the house, you can imagine how he felt about her bringing back a bunch of strange men to the bed that he was still sleeping in with her. Wait, they're in their own- Why would you do that? Just they have their own house. Even if it is a one-bedroom house, just sleep in the lounge or somewhere else. It's a house, right? So I'm not like, just checking my privilege here, but it's a house. That implies it has more than one room. So let's say that other room, it's not a studio apartment. Let's just say the other room is the kitchen or the hallway or whatever. You don't have, you don't have to sleep in the same bed as your mum if you live in a house. What's that about? Up to this point, it would be hard not to feel bad for the kid. He was born with a genetic abnormality, suffered an entire childhood of physical trauma resulting in physical abnormality, and he had an extremely dysfunctional home life. I mean, hard not to feel bad. <laughs> Am I a dick? I feel like it's not the best upbringing, but it's not anywhere close to the shit that other people have gone through on Casual Criminalist. It's like, okay, his parents got divorced. They're not particularly well off. They own a house, which is, I think, more than what a lot of people can say. Um, his mum's employed. She makes enough money. Uh... I've, I I have some sympathy, but I can't say I have a lot. Yeah, good point. But the next year, at the age of 13, he killed his dog by shooting it in the vagina. Oh my god, okay, well, <laughs> that, is, that little bit of sympathy that I just had is, uh... <laughs> and I'm not even a crazy dog person, but don't kill animals, for f**k's sake. That is, this, that is serial killer, like, you know that kid's gonna kill. Sympathy gone, yes. Put that kid on a f***ing watch list, agreed. His justification for killing the dog was anger at his mother for feeding the dog filet mignon while only giving him a hamburger. This is almost certainly not true, and if she was giving the dog steak instead of dog food, it was probably seven bone chucks, the cheapest steak available back then, but kids are stupid and they can't tell different cuts of meat apart. While Bowie was 13, there were three other major developments. Because of his extra female chromosome, two of those major developments were on his chest. Kids are already stupid and immature, and having failed the first grade, he would have been in school with even younger, less mature children. He was endlessly teased for his large breasts, and he had to get breast reduction. The other development was quite possibly the first good thing to happen in his life. He met Cynthia Bartlett. He confided in her, and the two became extremely protective of one another. Thanks to their relationship, he even stopped sleeping in the same bed as his mother. Okay, <laughs> I'm really confused about this. Like, why would he do that? How old is he? He's like 13. <laughs> no. Love and marriage. 
high school didn't go well for Bobby. He dropped out of the 10th grade twice, then attempted to re-enroll when he was 18. I don't know how old kids in the 10th grade are, Kevin. We use different grade systems. <laughs> I don't know what this means. He wound up getting expelled. Holy So he enlisted in the military. Throughout this time, he and Cynthia had remained together, and it seemed nothing was going to tear them apart. Sure, there may have been a rape allegation when he was 18, but he was let go because the police determined the girl was lying. That's the shitty 1970s way of saying there wasn't enough evidence to press charges. While in the military, Bobby earned his GED and became an electrician's assistant. In January of 1974, at the age of 21, he and Cynthia got married on the Air Force base where he was stationed. Oh, sorry, I, for some reason in my mind, I didn't think they were having a romantic relationship. I just thought they were friends. Okay, my bad. They, were, they got married. Great. Everything was coming up roses, and this pair of damaged childhood sweethearts were going to have their happily ever after for about a month. Wait, what was wrong with Cynthia? Was she troubled she just seemed like a normal person that wasn't mentioned okay well whatever we learned something new don't we in february of that same year bobby was in yet another accident he was riding his motorcycle and collided with a moving car this is another thing where it's not like that's not bad luck he's probably had like many he's had a string of accidents and it's the sort of thing that if he's getting hit by cars because he's not looking when he's crossing the road should we put him in a car himself he's probably a danger on the road because it's like number of car I, i've not been in a car accident but I'm not good at parking, and I smashed my car into the side of a car. It was actually not my car, it was a rental car. <laughs> it was just like, absolutely, it was just parking it, parallel parking. And I just misjudged the size of the car completely, and just ground like four panels against someone else's car. And uh, yeah, that's the only car accident I've been in. But if you've been in like two or three, you're going to be in four, five, or six. It was like, I remember when I was at, I was at school, and there was some there was someone who wrote off like, two cars or three cars in the course of a year and it's like should you really have a license and oh my god your insurance must be insanity he was hospitalized for months due to the severity of his injuries not only was there even more massive head trauma but there was severe damage to his shoulders and his leg was crushed so badly the doctors nearly amputated it although ultimately decided against it immediately following this accident something dramatic changed inside bobby though the injuries he sustained throughout his life were always an accident it should be noted that one of the symptoms of Kleinfelter syndrome is poor motor skills this lack of coordination could explain why he had so many accidents another frequent symptom of this condition is a lack of interest in sex we know that he and cynthia have been having sex since he was 14 so he definitely had at least some interest in it but nothing like after his motorcycle accident every time cynthia visited him in the hospital he would request sex with her and according to the nurses he was masturbating five or six times a day something has gone wrong in his brain like that is not normal behavior and they when was this the 1960s they can't give him a proper brain scan and figure what's going on can they but something's definitely wrong with him after being released from the hospital, he and Cynthia would have sex twice a day, but this wasn't enough. Luckily for Bobby, he had a lot of time on his hands. He'd been discharged from the military due to his injuries and was unemployed. This left him lots of time to roam the neighborhood looking for women who were home alone that he could rape. Oh my lord. Bobby and Cynthia had their first child in 1974 and their second in 1975. Their relationship had seemed picture perfect, and even though she tried to hold the family together, it was more than just Bobby's libido that changed as a result of the accident. It was like he was an entirely different person. He became physically and verbally abusive, and less than a year after their marriage, he had already been arrested for battery against his wife. This is one thing that scares me. Like, about getting in accidents and stuff, is like, you can just be me. Like, I could just be me. You could be like, I don't know, normal person, getting on with my life, doing my shit. And then it's like, you can just bash your head real bad, like this. And it's like, it turns you into like a, 
a pervert monster. And it's like, fuck, man, that's intense. And then it's like, you're like a criminal. And it's like, but I just banged my head real bad. <laughs> this, I have much more like his upbringing and stuff. That's something you've got to get under control. That's like, yeah, people have shitty upbringings and most of them deal with it and become normal functional members of society. I've got a lot more sympathy for him being in a car accident and that just rewiring his brain and turning him into a monster. Because that's like, that's like biologically something's wrong with him. Right? Does that make sense? Am I making sense here that one is like, and I mean, that doesn't mean he shouldn't have any accountability for his actions, but if his brain is screwed up, then that's like, isn't that different? Do courts treat that differently? After six long years of marriage, Cynthia filed for divorce in 1980. She had truly loved Bobby, but whoever he was before the accident was gone. Of course, the first rape allegation also happened before his accident, so perhaps this was all inevitable and the motorcycle crash just accelerated it all. Either way, Bobby was now a single man with a dangerously uncontrollable libido. Yeah, there was that allegation before, so it's possible, you know, he didn't seem like a great person. He shot his dog, so he's obvious. Maybe this just, like, unlocked maybe this just removed that barrier like he had that darkness inside of him that he managed to keep down for like the most part and then he had this accident and it just opens the floodgates and now it's just like he's all over the show god this is like this is morally more complicated than just the person is like a natural psychopath with a terrible upbringing who then decided to wear people's faces that's like okay Let's make sure he goes to prison forever, or maybe gets the electric chair. And with this, it's like, okay, so he wasn't a good guy, but then he had some mental trauma, which like unlocked things for him. It's it's definitely more morally complex, isn't it? Or are people listening to this being like, Simon, he's a rapist murderer. Get him into prison. I mean, I'm not saying he shouldn't go to prison, but is that just me? I don't know. Use the comments if you're watching. I'm curious what people think about this. Classified ad rapist. After his divorce, Bobby wounds up living with his friend Susan, who he raped. She files. <laughs> this guy's. His brain is broken. His brain is broken. She filed charges which were dropped due to insufficient evidence. Two weeks later, they got into a physical fight, and she filed battery charges against him. Around this time, Bobby began raping local sex workers. But why? I'm not advocating for him to rape anyone, but why sex workers? They would have had consensual sex with him. It's literally their job. Well, I'm gonna guess because I'm gonna guess, first of all, it's not to do with the money. Second of all, I'm gonna guess that it's uh, because he doesn't get off it like that's his his brain is broken and he gets off on a mix of violence and sex. And we've seen that many times in casual criminalists. It's not uncommon. Now, Bobby was having difficulty holding down a job. He worked as an x-ray technician previously, but lost that job. He got another x-ray tech job in 1983, where he was described as a good and polite worker at first. Two months after he started, he got fired for making women needlessly remove their clothing before the x-rays. <laughs> Dude. They'll be like, can you remove that t-shirt? And the woman will be like, wait, it's an x-ray. Doesn't it just look through the t-shirt? And Bobby would be like, well, just, you know, look, I'm the technician here, so you're going to need to remove that shirt. <laughs> Dude. He was eventually convicted for the assault of his former friend Susan, but he kept writing letters to the judge extolling his innocence and pleading for a new trial. For reasons unknown, the judge granted a retrial and he was acquitted. Yay, 
criminal justice system. This was not the only legal trouble that Bobby wound up in whilst raping sex workers with impunity. It's unclear how they even met, but Bobby was charged with mailing nude photographs and a sexually explicit letter to a 12-year-old girl. He pleaded no contest to the charges and received two days in jail plus probation. How about, how about if you're sending nude pictures of yourself to a child, you, uh, you go to prison for more than two days? Just saying. Just saying. Might be good. I'm sure at the end of those two days, he was fully rehabilitated. <laughs> Jesus. After years of raping random sex workers he found on the street and also sending dick pics to children via snail mail, in 1984, he was ready for his first premeditated rape. Kevin, what are you talking about? All of these rapes have been premeditated. I mean, to some degree. I, I don't... He goes out looking on the streets for a sex worker and he has raped many sex workers before that is premeditated am i wrong absolutely not when i first saw that bobby had been given his nickname by the media i assumed it was something like the craigslist killer before the interweb newspapers had a classified section where you would post whatever you needed if you wanted sex that seems like the sort of classified ad that you should be looking for but bobby went a different route he was more interested in ads that read oakwood bureau for 30 dollars or best offer Bobby would browse through the local penny saver to find houses or furniture for sale with female names listed as the contact. He would visit these people and chat the woman up and find out if she lived alone. If she did, he would ask to use the bathroom or where he would take out his rape kit. He would then proceed to rape and rob the woman. He committed at least 50 rapes in Florida starting in 1974, but it was probably many, many more than that. In 1984, after beginning the classified ad rapes, Bobby began not only raping but murdering the women as well. The women he murdered were not those he visited their own homes. They were normally sex workers or other women he saw on the street that he would politely offer a ride to so they wouldn't have to walk home. Dude, don't get in someone, don't get in people's car randomly. If some dude's driving down the street and he's like, do you want a ride? It looks like you're going somewhere and maybe it'd be faster by car. Don't get in the car. Never get in the car. Just keep on walking. In each instance, the method was the same. He'd pick the women up, rape them in his car on the side of the road, then murder them either by strangulation, bludgeoning, or stabbing. The bodies were then dumped on the side of a rural road or dragged into the woods. They were often not found until they were in a highly decomposed state. The murders were all similar, so there's no need to try and go into too many details of each individual one, but we should still address the victims. How is this... How is he doing... This is the thing, like, also... Having just recorded that, I, I don't know if the Ted Bundy one will have come out before this or after this or whatever, but one thing that really struck me when reading that yesterday, or the day before, it, does, it doesn't matter, like, is he was getting away with this for so long. And I know in casual criminals we often talk about, like, the incompetency of police work and, and stuff like this, but sometimes it just seems mad. Like, this guy isn't particularly bright. He isn't committing crimes while being some sort of criminal genius. He is brain damaged to the extent that he's driven by some sort of insane, depraved sexual desire. So he's not being careful in any way. And still, he's not getting caught. And he's going to women's houses, raping them, assuming he's not rolling up there wearing a mask, and just getting away with it. How, I wish Kevin had told me some numbers. I don't really know numbers. Or did he say... Wait, there was like... How many was it? Like, is that the total number? Well, he said at least 50 rapes in Florida. Okay, so it's an insane number. What's going on? The victims. 
In the span of eight months, Bobby murdered at least 10 women before being caught by the police. Authorities knew that the murders were related due to fibers found on the bodies that would later be identified as having come from Bobby's car. His first murder victim was 20-year-old Artis Wick. She was a sex worker that had only intended to rape, but afterwards he still wasn't satisfied and decided to strangle her to death. This must have done the trick for Bobby since he continued to kill and at a rapid pace. Next was Lana Nugan Thie Long, a 19-year-old girl who had just quit her job as a stripper. When the body was found on the side of the road, she was fully nude, with her legs spread extremely wide, with her feet five feet apart. Michelle Sims was the next body found. She was a 22-year-old prostitute and cocaine addict. At the scene of her body, the police found the fibers we mentioned, as well as human hair, a bare footprint, and semen. Despite not being careful at all, this evidence would not help police find him, it would only solidify his guilt. The first victim to break the pattern of sex workers and strippers was 22-year-old Elizabeth Laudenbeck. After having his way with her, Bobby ordered her to put her clothes back on and get in the car. He planned to let her go, but strangled her to death because he couldn't handle her incessant crying. She was the first clothed victim he had dumped. He found her ATM card and PIN number in her wallet and withdrew money from her account at several banks within the hours immediately following the murder, when her body was found 17 days later. It only weighed 25 pounds. Simon, prepare to lose your shit now, because after the fourth murder, Bobby found himself in court for sentencing yet again. While he was committing these crimes, he had also tried to abduct a woman, Mary Hicks, at gunpoint while she was driving a Jaguar. He entered her car and was trying to direct her, but she deliberately crashed the car so that she could run away. Very, very smart move there. Now, Bobby had already been accused of rape multiple times, charged with beating his wife, charged with assaulting Susan, and charged with being extremely inappropriate with a 12-year-old. He had managed to get the assault conviction against Susan overturned, but he was still on probation for the underage girl. How long should a person who is already on probation go to jail for pulling a gun on someone and trying to kidnap them? I don't know, Kevin. Maybe we could go for forever. Like, how can this not be brought up in court and someone being like, See a bit of a passionate behavior here. <laughs> Maybe we should, uh, look into this. Maybe we should, uh, you know, he tried to kidnap someone. I feel that that should be trying to kidnap someone at gunpoint five to ten years, right? In prison, at least. That's a major, major crime. Let's go. If your answer was anything higher than zero days, then you would make a terrible judge in America's legal system. No. Bobby was charged $1,500 for the damage to Mary's Jaguar and given three years of probation. Are you smoking crack, judge? Whoever was the judge on this case allegedly was hitting that crack pipe hard because what the actual f***? Bobby took his probation seriously, which is why he waited an entire month and a half before killing again. His next victim was Vicky Elliott, a 21-year-old who worked at a coffee shop inside a Ramada Inn. Her body would not be found for over two months. Chanel Devon Williams, an 18-year-old sex worker, was his next target. She was athletic and strong, making it difficult to kill her as she was fighting back, so Chanel was the only girl that he murdered with his gun. A week later, the same day Chanel's body was found, Bobby struck again. This time his victim was 22-year-old sex worker named Kimberly Hopps. Less than a week later, the day before Bobby's birthday, Karen Beth Din's friend, a 28-year-old who was already known to police as a drug addict and thief, approached his car offering sex in exchange for the money she needed to support her addiction. After raping and killing her, he was startled by the sound of dogs barking nearby. He waited silently in his car with Karen's body for the sound to pass before putting her in the trunk and driving to a safer location to dump her body. Two and a half weeks later, Bobby met Lisa McVeigh. She may have escaped, but she was not the final victim. Oh, is this the woman from the beginning? 
Okay. Two days after dropping off Lisa, the body of 18-year-old Virginia Johnson was found. She was so badly decomposed and dismembered from the elements and wild animals that her date of death couldn't be determined. One week after he had kidnapped Lisa, Bobby murdered his final victim, 21-year-old stripper Kimberly Swain. He saw her driving drunk and signaled for her to pull over. He offered her a ride to go get a drink with the intent of raping her, but the two argued in the car and she began vomiting from already being so intoxicated, so he skipped straight to the murder. That is 10 murder victims that we know of, and at least 50 rapes. The second number is certainly higher, and in interviews with the police, Bobby alluded to more murder victims as well, but he never gave details, so we'll never know for sure. But now it's time for our story to end back where it began. The one that got away. The first thing Lisa saw when she removed her blindfold was a big, beautiful oak tree. As she stared at it, she thought to herself that she was going to have a new life and that it would be better. She also told herself that even though she only survived because of the years of sexual abuse that she had already suffered, she would never let anyone do that to her again. Lisa began running. It was 4.30 in the morning, and after making her way to her grandmother's house, terrified that every car she passed was Bobby coming back for her, she began starting to bang on the door to let her in. The thing is, her grandmother's boyfriend wasn't any less of a piece of that morning than he was any other day, so he opened the door, grabbed her by the hair, and threw her to the ground. For the next five hours, the man beat Lisa while interrogating her, demanding to know where she had been and why she was cheating on him. This is so f***ed up. Her grandmother apparently was totally cool with everything that was happening because she called the Tampa police to let them know not to worry about the missing girl, that she was home, and making up some story about being kidnapped. Lisa was once again ready to kill herself, save for the fact that the police insisted on conducting an investigation. Good. Let's go, police. Even though they're like, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. It's like, come here, everything's fine. And then the police are like, we're coming. F yes, let's go. At the police station, Lisa was calm, coherent, and unwavering in her story. She knew the type of car she was in. She could describe the man that had kidnapped her. He never fully let her see his face, but she had caught glimpses from under her blindfold, and at one point in between the sessions of abuse, he had kissed her and put her hand on his face. Foolishly, this let her feel his facial features. She knew he had a small mustache, a snub nose, pockmarks on his skin. He was clean, had small ears, and even more. She also knew much of the route that she had been on. She saw buildings she recognized and could tell they were on the highway based on the sound of the wind outside the car. In short, Lisa was the last person anyone should have ever kidnapped. Aside from that brief moment when she heard the announcement of her own missing persons report, she had kept her composure the entire time, carefully logging every single detail for this very moment when she could finally tell the police her story. And the female detective she was talking to didn't believe a word of it. She asked Lisa to go over everything again and again, refusing to believe someone who went through this ordeal could be so calm and remember so many details despite being blindfolded. Lisa began getting angry, and upon being asked to repeat it again, she finally told the detective, no, bring in someone more intelligent. <laughs> Legends. The detective brought in someone more intelligent. <laughs> Uh, no, it doesn't say that, but she brought in someone called Larry Pinkerton, Sergeant Larry Pinkerton, head of sexual crimes for the Tampa Police Department. He sat down, took out his wallet, pulling out a picture of his daughter. He explained to Lisa that he had a daughter that was her age and he would do anything to protect her and that he was going to protect Lisa too. When he said this, she started crying, but she went through all the details about Bobby and her abduction again. Larry was amazed. He had never before seen a victim of a violent crime able to recall so many details of the perpetrator and their surroundings, let alone one who could do it so calmly. When he walked out of the room, Lisa heard him tell one of the female detectives, I believe her, call the FBI.
On November the 15th, 1984, Bobby was pulled over by the police based on the description later had given of his car. He described himself as feeling relieved, believing that he was finally caught. The police photographed him, but to his surprise, they let him go. He had not immediately confessed, and they could not yet link him to any verifiable evidence. What they could do, now that they had found the car, was immediately put him under 24-hour surveillance. The next day, he was arrested outside of a movie theater and charged with the rape and kidnapping of Lisa. Interrogation and Trial Bobby was a sloppy criminal and was relieved to have been caught. Yeah, how did it take so 50 rapes, 10 murders? He's so sloppy. He did nothing to, like, hide his crimes other than, like, maybe wear a mask sometimes. Jesus. Because he was not a bright criminal, his first orders of business upon being brought in for questioning were to sign a formal document waiving his Miranda rights and consenting to being questioned. It didn't take long for the detectives to get a confession for the assault and kidnapping of Lisa, so their questions quickly turned to the murders for which they had a mountain of evidence. He initially answered these questions by simply stating, I'd rather not answer that, but the detectives pressed forward. They showed Bobby pictures of his murder victims, at which point he said, The complexion of things sure have changed since you came back in the room. I think I might need an attorney. Now, these were detectives, not the thought police, so he was free to think he might need an attorney all he wanted. Thinking is different than explicitly asking for one, so the interrogation continued without a lawyer present. He confessed to nine of the murders. Gal lawyer. Lawyer, lawyer, lawyer. (laughs) Go lawyers, gal lawyer. Before going to trial, the public defender was able to get him a plea bargain. Uh, This is going to be one of those plea bargains where it's like, you're life in prison and you avoid the death penalty, right? That's what's going on. This was Florida. They have the death. It's Florida. They probably still put put death to people like now. There's probably someone being put to death in Florida right now, right? Florida is that kind of place. On September the 24th, 1985, Bobby pled guilty to eight of the murders and the, induction, and the abduction and rape of Lisa McVeigh. As per the agreement, he would be sentenced to 26 life sentences without the possibility of parole, 24 to be served concurrently, with two more to run consecutively after those. He was also sentenced to seven more life sentences with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Now, Simon, you asked this in a previous episode, and you may find yourself asking once again, where's your yeehaw now? It's right here. In addition to the agreed-upon sentencing, the state reserved the right to seek the death penalty for the murder of Michelle Sims. Bobby was found guilty, and in July of 1986, he was sentenced to death. Wow, that plea bargain sucks. (laughs) It's like, yeah, 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 no, 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 you can plea bargain to all of this stuff, but there's one other murder that we still want to be able to nail you on the death penalty on. Why even... Could why do the plea bargain if the death penalty is still on the table? What are you up to? Your lawyer needs to be better. He would also be convicted for the murder of Virginia Johnson and receive another death penalty, but that one was overturned on appeal. Fortunately, the original death sentence still stood. Where are they now? <laughs> Probably dead. This was a long time ago, and I know people wait on death row for a while, but it's been a long while. After vowing to herself never to be raped again, Lisa left her grandmother's and moved into a runaway center. When she was going to age out of the shelter, she was asked if she had any relatives she could live with. The staff found her mother in a crack house, and she wanted nothing to do with her daughter. Probably for the best there. Lisa wound up moving in with her aunt and uncle, the only people who had ever showed her any love and affection. From then on, Lisa's life only got better. She got married, she had kids, and she was working as a secretary for the Hillsborough County Department of Parks and Recreation, which, less television has lied to me, is an amazing and hilarious job <laughs> one day. The best thing to potentially ever happen to anyone, anywhere. It's a good show. One day, she had to report a break-in at the office. The deputy that arrived said she had the attitude to be a cop and asked her if she'd ever considered it. 
The answer was yes, she had, but she had a seven-year-old daughter and didn't want to risk getting shot and killed. As luck would have it, four years later, she got transferred to the sheriff's office to be a dispatch operator. Once she was there, she decided to become a reserve deputy to see if the job would be a good fit for her. Once again, the answer was yes, so she put herself through the police academy and became a sheriff's deputy in 2004. She's now working at the same department that arrested Bobby, where she specializes in combating sex crimes and working to protect children. She also works as a school resource officer at a middle school where she uses her story to teach children how to protect themselves if they ever wind up in dangerous situations. And what about Bobby? On April the 23rd, 2019, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, signed his death warrant just three months after taking office. Wow, it took a long-ass time, though. All of the subsequent appeals were denied. Exactly one month after the death warrant was signed, Bobby received his last meal at 9.30am. He had requested, who cares, with a side order of I don't give a shit. I'm happy <laughs> they still have a customer providing death row inmates with their choice of last meal, but I'm much happier that at 7pm that night, he was pronounced dead from lethal injection. yippee ki <laughs> I don't think death row prisoners should get that last meal of their choosing i think it's a weird tradition that it's like i'm sorry why are we doing you a favor again <laughs> like give him a cigarette that's it give him a cigarette and uh, get it done and i'm not the only one who's happy he's dead lisa mcveigh sat in front row for his execution stating that i want him to be the first person that he saw <laughs> excellent also in attendance was linda nuttall a woman who was 33 at the time that bobby raped her in a home during his spree of classified ad attacks wrap up so was this abby's story no of course it's not it's a true crime episode <laughs> unless it's a heist there's not a lot of happy stories to be had but as far as the ending goes it's about as happy as it gets a murderer was captured thanks to one of his victims after she was able to trick him into letting her go not only did she escape and make sure he saw justice but she was able to completely turn her around her otherwise completely life as a result yeah uh, it's I, I like this and i love the fact that she goes around and talks about this because i don't know like this motivational shit and all of this i really think like it there could be someone in that shitty situation and just seeing someone who got out of it is like that's got to be super inspiring right i love that she went on to become a police officer for the very department that arrested him specializing in investigating and preventing the exact crime she fell victim to and she got to sit front row and watch him get executed if there has to be a story about murder well this is a pretty good ending yeah okay this was uh an interesting one thank you kevin thank you jen thank you me if you enjoy this show why not leave it a review if you're listening to it as a podcast if you're watching on youtube subscribe like and i'll see you next time seeking the truth never gets old Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.